Todd gave me the feeling right at the beginning of an intelligent, well-schooled man. His words, his English, uh, his way of using them, subdued all the time. He had a dream. He really did. He knew where he was going with that radio station. He was really about the most unforgettable man I've ever met. He was, he was just exciting to work for. Todd was introverted. The term natural born salesman wouldn't apply. He was quiet. He took disparate personalities and welded them into a working, uh, successful business venture. And he hit the top of ratings in, in almost every market outside of Minneapolis that he tried. I think there's a lot of us for whom that was a very formative period in the sense that uh, we were working for the best radio company there was. And uh, I guess in retrospect, I, I may believe that it's not only the best uh, radio station company there ever was, or probably ever will be, because there'll never be another era exactly like that. On April 13, 1964, United Press International stunned the broadcasting industry with the news that Todd Storrs, head of Storrs Broadcasting Company, one of the nation's leading independent radio groups, was found dead at his home in Miami Beach. According to UPI, Storrs died from a cerebral vascular occlusion, a stroke. He was 39. UPI continued, Storrs is credited with inventing and promoting so-called formula radio in which stations severed connections with big networks and broadcast the leading 40 popular tunes of the day with headline news reporting. Meanwhile, Storrs Executive Vice President George W. Armstrong assured employees of its six radio stations by memorandum from Kansas City, saying in part, there will be no change in ownership, management, or policy of the Storrs Broadcasting Company. Further assurances came from Robert H. Storrs, Chairman of the Board. By memorandum dated June 30, 1964, Todd's father squelches rumors that the store's stations were up for sale. These rumors are not true, he said. He wrote, I am justifiably proud of the splendid organization Todd perfected. I am certain all store's stations will continue to operate in much the same manner as previously. I'm Richard Fatherly. And I'm Ray Otis with an inside look at radio's revolution and the world's happiest broadcasters. This study is about Robert Todd Storrs, whose father, Robert Herman Storrs, stood with Todd's entry into radio broadcasting and the purchase in 1949 of Omaha World Herald newspaper radio affiliates KOWHAM and KOAD-FM in Omaha, Nebraska. The youngest of the four Storrs brothers, Robert H. Storrs retired his stock in the family's Storrs Brewing Company in January 1959 to devote himself to Todd's radio business. Following Todd's death in 1964, Robert took charge and control. But in a business sense, it was quietly acknowledged that Todd's father had always been in control because he owned 60% of the newly established Mid-Continent Broadcasting Company, 
later known as the Stores Broadcasting Company. Purchased for $50,000 cash on top of a $25,000 mortgage, KOWH-AM held the disadvantage of a daytime-only FCC license. By mid-July 1949, the new Mid-Continent Broadcasting Company, capitalized with $250,000, took ownership of KOWH and disposed of KOAD-FM. Robert H. Storrs would be its president. 25-year-old son Todd was in charge as vice president and KOWH general manager. With 500 watts on Clear Channel 660, its signal reached from Omaha into Nebraska, Iowa, South Dakota, Missouri, and Kansas. Despite its daytime-only license, KOWH became the prototype for the most imitated radio programming in the post-World War II era. While the world was watching America, increasing numbers of Americans began watching television. But by 1951, media analysts were watching KOWH because something big was happening to radio in Little Omaha. Harold Soderland, former Omaha radio sales manager, advertising agency owner, and store's confidant, recalls. Todd stumbled around with KOWH for the first year. It took him a year to, to really find out where he was going to go with this thing. By mid-June of 1951, the C.E. Hooper Radio Ratings Research Organization announced that KOWH was the top-rated independent station in the nation. Former KOWH and later WHB continuity director Peggy McGrath remembers. You could just see something happening, you know. It was so much fun working there and seeing all this happen. The half the time I wouldn't even take a paid vacation. I was afraid I was going to miss out on something. It was really exciting to see the ratings go up and up and up. What was the organization that Todd perfected? And how did that organization shake the very underpinnings of the network radio broadcasting establishment? Store's programming policy became centered on two components. Radio station promotions created to cause publicity and to attract tune-in. And the spaced repetition of currently popular music. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you candy. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you everything. In October of 1951, KOWH hid money at various locations in the Omaha Council Bluffs area and broadcast clues leading to its whereabouts. Huge traffic jams resulted. Police were called in to redirect traffic, and Todd himself was arrested and released on $10 bond for failure to stay in the line of traffic. The local publicity was sensational, but the street talk circulating in the radio broadcasting industry and along Madison Avenue in New York City was like money in the bank for KOWH, 
as national advertising agencies began to take a closer look at what was happening in Omaha. If Robert H. Storrs received wry smiles from the Omaha establishment because of his son's clever radio antics, it was Todd who'd have the last laugh, as KOWH ratings continued to soar. While Robert stood tall as a get-the-job-done civic leader, a pillar of the community, the money behind the new Mid-Continent Broadcasting Company, and its president, the KOWH treasure hunt promotion was only the beginning. March 1952, KOWH announcer Jim O'Neill tossed cash from atop a tree to gathering crowds. Traffic was tied up for blocks. Police were again called into action to unsnarl the mess. O'Neill was arrested, forfeited bond, and was ordered to appear in court. But wait, there's more. On a sunny day in April of 1953, KOWH rebroadcast emergency announcements from its previous year's Missouri River flood threat coverage. Dozens of men showed up at City Hall to volunteer. The local Nurses Association wanted to know why they hadn't been notified. And the incumbent mayor received telephone calls as the result of his previous year's remarks being rebroadcast. Switchboards to local authorities were jammed and many people left their jobs to return home, expecting the worst. KOWH said the rebroadcast was made to keep people awake to the ever-present threat of an emergency. June 1953. I know I'd go from rags to riches If you would only say you care Though my pocket may be empty, I'd be a millionaire. KOWH newsman Don Lochnane, using a hidden wire recorder with a Dick Tracy-style wristwatch microphone, captured the remarks of several prominent figures caught up in illegal gambling activities at Omaha After Hours night spots. Todd paid $500 for the gadget and bankrolled Lochnane's surreptitious bar-hopping recordings with $700 cash for food, drinks, and gambling. Todd Storrs was gadget-minded. Harold Soderlin remembers. Yes, yes, he was an engineer at heart. He truly was. He was interested in, in the engineering, in the sound. June 1956. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show. Free to get ready now, go cat, go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. You can do anything, but lay off of my blue suede shoes. KOWH placed six checks in selected books at the Omaha Public Library to, as KOWH announced, encourage better patronage of the library. The stunt caused pandemonium in the library's quiet, studied reading rooms. Some 90 volumes were damaged or destroyed. KOWH paid $565 in damages. While these stunts and others like them may not have been in the public interest, convenience, and necessity, 
a term often used by the Federal Communications Commission in evaluating the performance of radio station licensees, they did succeed in igniting controversy and local chit-chat as larger and still larger numbers of people began to sample KOWH programming. Once they tuned into KOWH's brand of on-the-air promotion, popular music, and sensational news reporting, the station's ratings began to climb as measured telephonically by C.E. Hooper Incorporated, then the nation's top radio ratings research organization. A ratings trend which began in October of 1950 and continued into 1957. For daytime-only KOWH, it was spectacular and unheard of. In 1949, the year of its purchase by stores, about four out of every 100 Omaha homes using radio listened to KOWH. By 1951, that figure grew by more than 600%. By 1952, it was about 800% greater than its 1949 ratings. By 1956, more than 40% of every 100 Omaha homes using radio listened regularly to KOWH. Stores programming clearly demonstrated that radio wasn't dead after all. Working with his KOWH staff, Todd brainstormed station promotions at what he called top brass meetings, promotions which became signature events of stores programming. Each promotion was designed to attract new tune-in and magnetize new tune-in into steady listenership. To accomplish these objectives, stores reason that money is the common need. Thus, the creation of a menu of day-to-day, week-to-week, and month-to-month listen-to-win promotions, offering building cash jackpots, big cash, simple cash, and extraordinary merchandise prizes. Stores' signature promotions for in-home and away-from-home listenership included lucky house number, lucky license number, as well as simple cash news tip awards. That's the KOWH five-minute newspaper for this hour. Presented five minutes before every hour, important bulletins at once. And don't forget, KOWH awards $25 for the best news tip each week. Remember to call Atlantic 2228 when you see anything you think newsworthy. These promotions and many others like them did for KOWH what Newt Rockney's forward pass did for Notre Dame football when the game simply wasn't prepared for it. Radio's revolution and the world's happiest broadcasters continues with Ray Otis. Now much has been written and discussed within the radio broadcasting industry about the origins of the store's top 40 music format. Here's what really happened. In 1950, Todd was approached by an administrator at the University of Omaha, now the University of Nebraska at Omaha, with results from a study conducted by an industrial psychological testing bureau. The study was designed in part to learn why people in Omaha listened to radio. Music was a big reason to listen, and KOWH made a showing in the study with its local Sweet Music program, then hosted by KOWH announcer George W. Armstrong. Todd purchased the study. I ring the night. I ring the night. Good night, I ring. Good night, I ring. I'll see you in my dream. He then sent his assistant, Gaylord Avery, to New York City to monitor radio station WNEW already a pioneer in popular music programming. 
Avery's assessment of WNEW and the study Todd had purchased convinced stores to remove network and transcribe programming on KOWH, which stood in the way of expanding its music programming. According to former KOWH newsman Walt Cavanaugh, Todd played popular music but frequently played the top 10 current hits. While the idea of Top 40 had roots in Omaha on KOWH with the frequent broadcast of the Top 10, the Top 40, per se, began at Todd's second station, WTIX in New Orleans, purchased in 1953. On the occasion of his 1951 interview with Todd for the position of KOWH morning show host, Johnny Pearson recalls Todd's probing questions about... What type of person I thought I was talking to who could be developed, and what would be their main type of listening. And we really evolved into uh, a discussion on Top 40 without it being that. We were talking Top 10 at that time. He didn't know Top 40. He didn't know it was going to be that. But he knew the audience that was available and could be built on was going to be young and the ones going after. Somewhere between the 15 years old and the 35 years old or so. The apparent inspiration for Todd's early focused programming of the Top Ten was the long-running network radio program, Your Hit Parade. Number one, the top tune of the week, the song the survey finds in first place. Here it is, the song you've been waiting to hear in its fourth straight week at the very head of Your Hit Parade. Eileen Wilson, the Hit Paraders, and song number one, Dear Hearts and Gentle People. With the hiring of KBON Omaha's Sandy Jackson and his already top-rated requests and dedications program, daytime-only KOWH soon became the nation's top-rated independent radio station. Sandy Jackson being hired to work at the station was a big event. Peggy McGrath. He was so popular when I was a teenager with his request shows, and that was a big coup to get him. With the outbreak of war in Korea, stores moved hourly KOWH news broadcasts to five minutes before the hour. It was unconventional, but KOWH listeners also heard a sensational news treatment. News from around the world. And news from around the corner. These are the happenings of the moment from the KOWH News Center. Former stores newsman Charles Gray put it this way. The, the idea of a news reporter in a store station was, was to be sort of a sensational player. The idea was to make the news as gossipy, as uh, sensational as possible. And they even suggested we subscribe to Confidential Magazine, which was a scandal sheet in the day, and it would be very tame by today's standards. The News Live at 55 format was later adopted by ABC Radio. The distinction is America's most listened to independent radio station earned for KOWH a 1951 citation from Nebraska Governor Val Peterson. The legend you are about to hear is true. Only the needle should be changed to protect the record. 
1953, the cat was already out of the bag as Todd purchased WTIX in New Orleans, WHB Kansas City in 1954, in 1955, WDGY Minneapolis-St. Paul, and in 1956, WQAM Miami. Todd's reputation preceded him as the radio broadcasters in these cities geared up for radio wars with the man Time Magazine called the fastest rising figure in U.S. radio. Jambalaya and a crawfish pie and a filet gumbo Cause tonight I'm gonna see my Michelle Mio Thick guitar, fill fruit jar, and be gay Son of a gun, we'll have big fun on the bio. In 1953, Stores established its presence in New Orleans with the purchase of WTIX. Todd paid $25,000 for the peanut whistle, a term used by radio people to describe a low-power radio station. But WTIX was a full-time peanut whistle with 250 watts at 1450 on the AM dial. Former KOWH record librarian, announcer, and salesman George W. Bud Armstrong was named by Todd to manage WTIX. Armstrong had abandoned preparations for a career in law to become a full-time radio broadcaster. He did his job well by taking the peanut whistle from the bottom of the ratings to number one in the daytime and to a neck and neck number two at night. All this by September 1954. Time Magazine reported that WTIX advertising revenues soared 3,000%, thanks in large measure to WTIX salesman Fred Berthelsen, who succeeded Armstrong as general manager. The key to WTIX's success was typical of an emerging store's programming strategy. Take the best ideas of the competition and do them better. Such was the case with New Orleans' NBC local affiliate WDSU, whose top 20 on 1280 program was an immediate target of stores counter-programming. WTIX upstaged WDSU's top 20 program by starting its countdown an hour earlier and ending an hour later. With the addition of 20 more song titles, WTIX now had 40. 40 was better than 20, reasoned Armstrong. Aimed primarily at afternoon drive time and evening audiences, the WTIX Top 40 Music Authority image attracted tune-in and preset radio dials for its morning show. Meanwhile, Todd was negotiating with the owners of New Orleans WWEZ to purchase the station. It was a powerhouse with 5,000 watts at 690 on the AM dial. The sale was completed in 1958 as stores gifted its 1450 spot on the dial to the New Orleans School Board for use as an educational station. It was a smooth public relations move that would prevent for the time being another operator from purchasing the frequency to, as Bud Armstrong put it, ape the format. The WTIX call letters moved to 690, blanketing the Gulf of Mexico mainland with stores' top 40 programming. Another Armstrong by the name of Bill remembers the WTIX story. Bud Armstrong and Todd and some others were sitting around figuring out what they could do on their station and they noticed that uh, WDSU had a program called the Top 20. Uh, they uh, thought if the Top 20 was successful 
that uh, the top 40 would be even better, and that's what they said. We're going to be twice as good as WDSU because we're going to play the top 40. Bill Armstrong had joined the KOWH staff at the age of 17 in 1954. Just out of high school, he remained at KOWH for two months, whereupon he was transferred to WTIX in New Orleans as its evening air personality while working his way through college. He was later named its program director and was subsequently named program director at Todd's fourth radio station, WDGY, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, purchased in 1955. William L. Armstrong moved into public life in the Colorado legislature and served with distinction for three terms in the United States House of Representatives and two terms in the United States Senate. Oh, life could be a dream If I could take you up in paradise up above If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love Life could be a dream, sweetheart under Storr's ownership, beginning in 1954, WHB Kansas City, the call letters which prompted the slogan, World's Happiest Broadcasters, proved to be the most respected set of call letters in the Midwest. Storrs paid $400,000 for them. With WHB, Storrs had latched onto a dream station at 710 on the AM dial, with 10,000 watts daytime and 5,000 watts at night. It became one of the most copied stations in the nation, with annual revenues reaching $2 million under the management of George W. Bud Armstrong, whose success with WTIX New Orleans had become company legend. Armstrong installed the story sound. Former WHB newsman Charles Gray was there. It was done by Armstrong. He was the, the man who brought the plan in and executed it. Todd Storrs was in and out, but Armstrong was the man who was on the scene. He was in charge of the, as we call it, the Army of Occupation. The Storrs company brought in new equipment, new ideas, better equipment. The engineers appreciated that. The engineers, I think, had a little culture shock at first because the rule was that when you worked in a Storrs station, even as an engineer, you worked in a coat and a tie. WHB became the tuned-up, revved-up synthesis of all stores had learned in Omaha and in New Orleans. With 47% of the radio audience by 1955, WHB demanded imitation. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. What would another store station be without another treasure hunt? The finders would be keepers of $2,000. Big money in October of 1955. Newsman Charles Gray. No one knew exactly what to expect. It took the town by surprise. They did it on a Sunday. It began in North Kansas City, I believe, then shifted to Kansas City, Kansas, back to Missouri, and ended up in Loose Park Lake. Uh, turtle, I think, was there with a number painted on its back in gold paint. And, uh, several thousand dollars were in the in the hopper for the the winner that day, and it did create a, a great deal of traffic congestion. It brought a lot of attention to the station. The station already had a lot of attention anyway. According to Time Magazine, Kansas City, Missouri, Police Chief Bernard C. Brandon said this kind of promotion should be banned. WHB studio supervisor Roy Nonamaker traveling with Todd Storrs and Bud Armstrong in WHB's radio telephone equipped station wagon remembers what happened. Traffic was tremendous and the cops come down there. I heard the sirens and, and 
Todd says, stop the station wagon here, and he got out and left us. He thought they was going to arrest him and put him in jail, I guess, when the thing was all over. By Bud says, well, Roy, I know one thing. People like money. <laughs> sweet, sweet memories you gave of me. You can't beat the memories you gave of me. Man, sweet, sweet memories you gave of me. Made of this. You can't beat the memories you gave but the biggest cash prize ever offered by stores was $210,000 split between KOWH Omaha and stores newly acquired WDGY Minneapolis-St. Paul. Stores paid $334,000 for the station. At 11.30 on the AM dial, WDGY's tricky nine-tower antenna system was fired up by 50,000 watts and was often an engineer's nightmare. According to Time magazine for June 4, 1956, the $210,000 treasure hunt prize was divided into two bank drafts of $105,000, each hidden within a 10-mile radius of KOWH and WDGY. Said Time, if the booty goes unfound by June 17th, stores will pay only $500, consolation prizes to the hunters who eventually stumbled onto the two hiding places. Former WDGY program director Bill Armstrong. Our having to pay off the prize was insured with Lloyd's of London or somebody because we had no intention of giving away that money. But uh, Lloyd's hit it and we did give uh, clues out on the air, created an enormous furor and uh, a certain amount, I guess, of uh, minor damage to people's properties when throngs of people would show up and start digging up their flower beds and whatnot. In fact, the, the, this flair for uh, promotions uh, was uh, kind of typical of the store stations. Radio's revolution and the world's happiest broadcasters continues. Here again, Richard Fatherly. The timing of Time's June 4th, 1956 edition was just in time for the routine hearings of the Federal Communications Commission. On its docket was the sale of WQAM Miami to Storrs Mid-Continent Broadcasting Company for $850,000. Without the FCC's okay, the sale would be dead in the water. The Time article was a slick piece of journalism. Under Todd's photograph was the caption, He Stops Traffic. Add to this the admonition attributed to Kansas City Police Chief Bernard C. Brannan that Storrs' treasure hunt promotion should be banned, FCC commissioners had a widely read publication, which by implication suggested that Storrs' radio stations may not have been operating in the public interest, convenience, and necessity. The WQAM Miami deal was in trouble. It was time for Todd to go to Washington, D.C. Harold Soderlund. Todd's confidant. If it had to do with a broadcast business, in other words, if you're going to run a top 40 station and you're going to abandon all of the rules that used to apply to a regional station, you're going to be interested in, in the FCC and its personnel and how to influence them in your favor. Or if you're applying for a station, his political interests were all tied to radio and radio stations. By memorandum dated July 23, 1956, 
Todd explained to his store's colleagues, I have just completed a very trying 10 days in Washington on the WQAM transfer. The question was not whether the commission would approve the transfer to us, but instead whether the commission would approve the transfer to us without a hearing. The contract to purchase WQAM expired on August 15, Said Todd, if the commission had failed to act, or if the commission had voted to send the matter to hearing, we would have, in all likelihood, lost the purchase of WQAM. Todd got the FCC's nod to buy WQAM. How that happened rocked the broadcasting industry. He pledged by a notarized affidavit appearing in the July 23, 1956 edition of Broadcasting Telecasting magazine that he would discontinue running his famous promotions on all the store's stations, including WQAM, thus sidestepping an FCC hearing and assuring FCC approval of the WQAM sale. The specter of censorship was widely discussed by broadcasters, but the implicit message was this, radio station programming content could have an effect on the licensing process. For that reason, the WQAM controversy had a lasting impact on the Mid-Continent Broadcasting Company and the broadcasting industry. The truth of the matter, said Todd, is that we discontinued these contests because they were questioned by the Federal Communications Commission. You ain't nothing but a hound dog, The WQAM deal now sealed, the station quickly dominated the radio listening habits of South Floridians. At 560 on the AM dial, WQAM's 5,000 watts drenched the Caribbean and much of South Florida with Store's Top 40 programming. Saturday Top 40, May 3rd, 1958. You put a smile on the dial of your radio. When you turn it to 560 So if you want the latest music and news There's no doubt about the station to choose WQAM Miami You're tuned to Radio 1 Miami WQAM Survey proved to have more listeners this time of day than all other radio stations in Miami combined Named by Todd to manage WQAM was Jack Sandler. An ex-hockey player, he'd covered the bases as well at KOWH Omaha as sports director and salesman, gaining local fame for his Major League Baseball game recreations using a sports ticker and sound effects. Joining Sandler in 1957 was KOWH announcer Kent Burkhart, whose administrative abilities and acquired store-style programming know-how 
placed him in the position of WQAM program director. WQAM became Todd's radio showpiece. He wrote, The Miami studios turned out to be absolutely terrific, by far the most attractive of any we have, in a letter to Dale L. Mowdy, Todd's former vice president of engineering. Mowdy had done much of the early studio design work. Also in 1957, the Mid-Continent Broadcasting Company changed its name to the Stores Broadcasting Company after the sale of Todd's original KOWH Omaha to William F. Buckley's National News Weekly for a reported $822,500, more than 10 times its original purchase price. In his March 28, 1957 memo, Todd wrote, there were several considerations which made it advisable to sell KOWH. We have had much greater success with our type of operation with full-time stations in larger cities than Omaha. There is a possibility that we may move our home office away from Omaha to Miami. Other factors, he said, made the sale necessary. One of those other factors was Omaha-based Don Burden and KOILAM, the mighty 1290. Harold Soderland. He cultivated Todd, oddly enough, something I never could understand. He copied everything the stores did, even down to the letterhead. He even got as close to the store's name as he could with the star stations, like he called them, the star stations. He copied everything that you could possibly copy. But uh, he had a full-time station, and Todd felt that he couldn't win against him in the ratings race. Then they didn't get along after a while. I'm all over, baby. Whole lot of shaking going on. Yes, I say, come all over, baby. Baby, you can't go wrong. We ain't faking. Whole lot of shaking going on. Oh, let's go. On close examination of Todd's successes, Dale Mowdy becomes a key personality in the development of the store's radio sound especially in a technical sense. As acquaintances, Todd and Dale shared a common interest in amateur radio as five-meter bootleggers, that is, both of them had operated illegally on the five-meter ham band. By his 16th year, Todd was a licensed amateur radio operator with the call letters W9DYG and operated from the third floor of the family's fashionable Omaha home. He'd built his first crystal set at the age of eight. Todd's sister, Susan, recalls... His radio room was directly above my bedroom. When he couldn't raise anyone with his call, he would ask me to come up and help. In my sexiest voice, I would say, Calling CQ, calling CQ. And within seconds, there would be many responses, and I would be dismissed to go back to bed. It was Dale Mowdy who developed the gadgets used by KOWH to further Todd's programming objectives a telephone answering device for a Talk to Santa Claus promotion, a device not then manufactured by the telephone industry. Hello, this is the KOWH operator. I'll transfer your call to the North Pole. Merry Christmas. This is your North Pole operator. Santa is very busy these days, but he wants to talk to you. Would you hold the line a moment? Paging hey, Santa, Santa Claus. Oh, well, hello there. This is Santa Claus speaking, and I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas. I know exactly what you want to find under the tree on Christmas morning. If you be good, you just might find it there. Thanks for calling, and Merry Christmas! Oh, 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 oh. 
an hourly time tone automatically triggered by the station's in-studio Western Union self-setting clock, an idea which earned Mowdy a $50 savings bond in Todd's Best Idea Awards competition. At the sound of the automatic electronic time tone in Miami, exactly 6 p.m. It's 9 a.m. Stand by for a WHB Worldwide Instant Time Check. In Tokyo, Japan, it's 10 a.m. In WHB land, at the tone, exactly 7 p.m. A modified jukebox mechanism placed at the WHB transmitter site, which played 45 RPM records after midnight. Known to WHB listeners as Silent Sam, it was a forerunner to radio programming automation equipment. According to WHB studio supervisor Roy Nonemaker, the machine was prone to tripping up and once played the same record for some two and a half hours. WHB's radar weather eye. Forecasting for Kansas City, fair and Mowdy credits Todd with the idea of using electronic reverberation as a KOWH modulation enhancement. According to Mowdy, the echo was Todd's idea and its subsequent application into broadcasting as a production tool. Miami, talks with Castro upcoming. A Cuban exile delegation. Following Mounty's modifications, the floating tremolo of an oil-dampened Hammond organ reverberation system found its way into each of the store's stations. Further, Dale Mounty was a pioneer in the development of studio-to-transmitter site remote control operation at KOWH. Mounty's presence, or that of his designate, was viewed with suspicion by most rank-and-file union technicians, especially at WHB. No doubt about it, WHB was a union shop. Studio supervisor Roy Nonemaker remembers how Todd stepped into a jurisdictional dispute to smooth things over in Kansas City. Todd was, he was a great guy. He called me old buddy. He always called me old buddy, and he told me, he says, Anything you need in the way of equipment, get it. Todd Stores was also a pioneer in telephone talk programming, with its early beginnings at WHB. It was Dale Mounty who developed its so-called multi-phone system, enabling the talkmaster and call-in listeners to speak not only with each other, but with out-of-town guests as well. Nightbeat, as it was called, aired Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m., the format was adopted by WQAM Miami and WDGY Minneapolis-St. Paul. Todd Storrs not only pioneered top 40 music programming, he was an early pioneer in telephone talk programming. By 1956, the five Storrs stations had gutted the ratings of well-established network affiliates while commanding premium rates from national advertisers. Clearly, the networks had been placed in the position of rethinking their future role in radio broadcasting. In January of 1958, Adam Young Incorporated, a national advertising sales representative for radio stations in the top 25 markets, released its study titled The Dynamic Change in Radio. It said the growth of local independent radio over the network affiliate was no longer a trend. It's an accomplished fact. The Young Report observed that until 1952, the top-rated radio stations in the top 25 markets had been network affiliates. But by 1957, the most listened-to stations in 21 of the top 25 markets were now independents, a ratio of 21 to 4. 
Arguably, Storr's-style programming was the ignition system for changing the way the American people would think about radio. Radio's revolution and the world's happiest broadcasters continues. Here again, Ray Otis. In 1957, the lure of New York City was cause for the removal of several of Todd's spark plugs. Stephen B. Lebunsky, who had progressed through the sales ranks at Todd's WHB to become a store's vice president and general manager at WDGY, was recruited by Robert E. Eastman, then president of American Broadcasting Network. Lebunsky's assignment as vice president of programming was to implement its new live and lively format, featuring live orchestras, singers, and performers. Todd referred to the idea as the great experiment. In late September 1957, Lebunsky appeared with Dallas-based broadcaster Gordon McClendon at a luncheon meeting of the Radio and Television Executive Society in New York City. Broadcasting and Telecasting Magazine for September 30, 1957, described as spirited discussion, the Lebunsky-McClendon showdown. Said Lebunsky, the very thing which Gordon McClendon, Todd Storrs, and others are doing to help assure local radio a future are substantially the same things which American broadcasting is doing to help assure radio networks a future. Therefore, if Gordon McClendon has a future, so do we. McClendon then asserted the sole function served by radio networks is to provide coverage of national and international events. In every other area of programming, said McClendon, local radio and or television is superior. After five months of live and lively programming, American Broadcasting Network abandoned the idea as too costly. Lebunsky resigned, saying that there was little left for him to do. He was quickly hired as general manager of R. Peter Strauss's WMCA, a New York City Top 40 independent. He later became president of NBC Radio and one of America's top radio network management figures. Lebunsky's exit from the Stores Group is important to this study for several reasons. He was the first of Todd's top management team to leave Stores Radio. He was recruited by a national radio network. And he invited Dale L. Mowdy, one of Todd's closest disciples and vice president of engineering, into the ABC web. Said Mowdy, the motivation was money, a lot more money. As special services consultant to ABC's owned and operated and affiliated stations, it was Dale Mowdy who wired ABC-owned KQV in Pittsburgh for a personality and promotion-driven stores-style Top 40 sound. KQV was the first network-owned radio station in the nation to adopt Top 40 as its programming policy. Stores radio advertising sales veteran Ralph Bodine from Todd's KOWH in Omaha was hired on Mowdy's recommendation as KQV general manager. Bodine would later move to Chicago as general manager of ABC-owned Top 40 powerhouse WLS. Other ABC-owned radio stations to embrace the Top 40 sound included WXYZ in Detroit and ABC flagship station WABC in New York City. Former KOWH morning show host and WHB program director John E. Pearson was another store's personality to leave Todd in 1957. 
He was recruited by Katz Representatives in New York City, an advertising sales organization for radio stations across the country. He was hired as programming consultant to its client radio stations. His earliest assignment was to advise WKY Radio in Oklahoma City on the impact of stores programming as Todd awaited FCC approval of his purchase of Oklahoma City's KOMA for $600,000. Just at this time, it was announced that Stores was coming into KOMA. So I said, okay, you're going to have one chance and then you're out. Because when they hit town and you don't change this, 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 I'm sorry, but you're going to have the same thing happen to you uh, that's happened in other cities. So we all agreed, okay. And I don't think KOMA ever got top position. Pearson's success with Cats prompted the attention of ABC Radio. Now, we did the same thing with ABC to the various stations that we were sent to around the country with varying results. Johnny Pearson also became a featured ABC Network Air personality. By 1958, Storrs alums had indeed influenced the reprogramming of ABC Network Radio with News Live at 55, the Top 40 format on several of its owned and operated stations, and many of its affiliates. With each news station, Storrs scouted the city and region for outstanding air talent. As in Omaha with Sandy Jackson, he wowed the Twin Cities' Jack Thayer from WTCN with the promise of what Storrs programming could do for WDGY. Jack Thayer succeeded Stephen Lebunsky as WDGY general manager and personified Todd's image of what a modern radio manager could and should be. A highly charismatic air personality, Thayer was not only sensitive to the nature of a radio audience, but also to the advertising sales process and radio's extraordinary creative ability to attract advertiser loyalty and its accompanying revenues. Former WDGY program director turned radio sales representative Bill Armstrong. Uh, he was one of the few air people in that era who really had a, a lot of sales savvy. I mean, he, he knew what it was all about. First of all, he gave me a tip about... Uh, an account that he thought might be a prospect for us, which was a tombstone manufacturing company in a city uh, 40 or 50 miles away, and he loaned me his car to drive down there, and sure enough, I sold them a 13-week schedule of newscasts at 11.55, just before noon, and uh, I remember their slogan was, Drive Carefully, We Can Wait. Following a serious 1957 illness, hospitalization, and recuperation, Jack Thayer left the store's broadcasting company. Thayer's career path would lead him to the mid-70s presidency of NBC Radio. Meanwhile, back in Oklahoma City, WKY had moved quickly to implement John E. Pearson's recommendations, including severing its long-standing ties to NBC and installing the Top 40 sound, thus upstaging Todd's new KOMA. To the amazement of industry observers, KOMA hooked up with NBC. It was short-lived. At 1520 on the AM dial, KOMA's 50,000 watts blasted the western United States and is best remembered as a nighttime sky wave beacon for long-distance listeners enthralled by radio's top 40 sound, with reception reports coming from as far away as Australia, addressed simply to... Coma in Oklahoma!
Others who left Todd in 1957 included KOWH Omaha production director Graham Richards, who spread the gospel of the store's formula to the seven stations of the Intermountain Network from Denver into Utah and Idaho to Montana. He later returned to Storrs Radio as Vice President of Programming. KOWH's Bill Stewart, Todd's first national program director, later became closely identified with Dallas broadcaster Gordon McClendon. A former speech and English instructor at Boston's Emerson College, Stewart was an idea man, according to Storrs Executive Vice President George W. Armstrong. McClendon had been one of Todd's staunchest allies. Here's why. According to former WHB program director John E. Pearson, McClendon came to Kansas City in 1955 to study the WHB operation, grafting much of its programming style to his KLIF in Dallas. I can remember at HB when I was program director. We'd have people come in and visit us to see how we did it. Only one guy that came to visit us, and I remember, took it home. And that was a guy out of Texas, Gordon McClendon. He came in and sat on my wastebasket and listened and listened and went back to Dallas and picked it up. Idea man Bill Stewart returned to the stores group at WHB on April 13, 1964, the day of Todd Storr's death. He again left Storr's radio in October 1966 to return to the McClendon Corporation. In its September 21, 1986 obituary on the passing of Gordon McClendon, the Dallas Morning News wrote, Although McClendon often is credited with the creation of Top 40 Radio, that honor is generally conceded to Todd Storrs, then owner of WHB in Kansas City, Missouri, a fact McClendon frequently acknowledged. Following the 1957 sale of Todd's original KOWH in Omaha, Morning show personality Bud Connell departed for New Orleans as program director of Governor Jimmy Noe's WNOE. With 50,000 watts at his disposal, stunt-minded Connell's ideas were brought to life by his razzle-dazzle recording techniques and a pie-in-the-face sense of humor. The ratings at Todd's WTIX began to seriously seesaw. Atlanta, Georgia-based broadcaster Robert W. Roundsville had gotten wind of it and in 1960 hired Connell to program his newly call-lettered WFUN in Miami. Roundsville's call letters said it all. Fun radio. WFUN offers for your swimming pool a very real, very much alive Atlantic Ocean shark, and she can be yours. In 25 words or less, write why I want a shark for my very own swimming pool pet. Send your entry to Shark in care of your fun station, WFUN Miami Beach 39. A shark you'll win from FUN to grace your pool a streamlined fin. You do have a pool, don't you? Now is the right time for Fun Radio's Miami debut. If WQAM's success since 1956 had been sensational, Fun Radio was sure to be sound-sational. Jules down Arab Mig. Miami, Operation Alert. Miami Beach, hotel owner shot on yacht. WFUN Fundamental News. This is Brett Huey with the Fundamental Facts. Meanwhile, WQAM's number one ratings had slipped to number four 
program director Charlie Murdoch blamed it on the shaky performance of automation equipment. It was later removed, and WQAM recovered much of its lost ground. The trendy bottom-line promise of early days automation seemed to make sense. Cut operating overhead and exercise greater control over programming content. For KOMA, automation was at best unreliable. For WQAM and WDGY, it had been a disaster. From the new home office headquarters of the store's broadcasting company on Miami Beach, Todd passed the word to Executive Vice President George Armstrong in Kansas City and Graham Richards, his Vice President of Programming, to hire Bud Connell as Program Director for store's newly acquired KXOK in St. Louis, purchased in 1960 for a reported $1.5 million. Bud took charge of KXOK programming in 1961. Conferring with Todd on his need for an operations and promotion budget, Todd said you don't have a budget, spend what you need, but spend it wisely. By 1962, KXOK had all but demolished its top 40 competition. At 6.30 on the AM dial with 5,000 watts, KXOK faced another challenge. A CBS-owned station with 50,000 watts on Clear Channel 1120. KMOX programming rested on the foundation theme of At Your Service, featuring always-present spot news, telephone talk, and major league sports. Its architect was Robert Hyland, an up-and-coming role model for talk radio's emerging management elite. OX was St. Louis Cardinals baseball, Cardinals football, August Bush and Budweiser beer. It was Jack Buck, Harry Carey, and a choir of talk show maestros gift-wrapped for the St. Louis establishment and St. Louis's blue-collar majority. Enormously successful and highly respected, KMOX was about to meet its match. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. In the spring of 1964, Storr's vice president, Jack Sampson, arrived in St. Louis to manage KXOK. He had been the general manager of KOMA in Oklahoma City. KOMA, he said, had been his crucible. He had worked his way through the sales department at Todd's WHB. Jack embraced the stores people, I think, pretty warmly fairly early in this game. And at a party one night, it was announced that Jack had been named sales manager. Well, Jack was the youngest fellow in the place. He was just a year or so older than I was. And he had only been there about a year or two longer than I had been. And it was good to see that a, a fellow his age was being recognized by this new company. And he was beginning to make his moves. He was beginning to be an influential player. Samson rebuilt the KXOK sales staff, organized his chain of command, and increased station billings by more than a thousand percent. With revenues approaching $3.5 million, the station had been losing money. In 1966, the Pulse Incorporated, a national radio ratings research group, announced its compilation of the nation's five most listened to radio stations. Two of them were in St. Louis. KMOX, the CBS-owned at-your-service station, and KXOK, the store's own Top 40 station, the last radio station acquired by Todd. Two years had passed since Todd's untimely death in 1964. Now positioned as one of the top five most listened to radio stations in the nation, KXOK 
was Todd Story's Last Hurrah. Now, with some final thoughts, here's Richard Fatherly. As this presentation is being produced, 10,263 commercial radio stations are licensed for broadcast by the Federal Communications Commission. 5,442 FM stations now outnumber their 4,821 AM counterparts. Television stations number 1,553. But that isn't the way it used to be. An old cowpoke been riding out one dark and windy day. Nearly a half century ago in 1949, when Storrs purchased its first radio station, daytime only KOWH in Omaha, there were 2,086 AM stations, 733 FM stations, and 97 TV stations. Don't be cruel, too hard, it's true. In 1956, the year Todd purchased WQAM in Miami, AM stations jumped to 3,108, FMs dropped to 550, TV stations increased to 628. The decline in FM stations gave rise to the expression that FM meant failing money, an expression attributed to Todd's father. Don't you give me no dirty looks. But in 1958, the year stores acquired KOMA in Oklahoma City, FM rebounded to 686 stations. AMs climbed to 3,423, and television stations grew to 666. In 1960, the year stores purchased KXOK in St. Louis, AM stations numbered 3,623. TV dropped to 659. But the big news was FM, which rocketed to 990 stations. According to the Radio Advertising Bureau, national advertising revenues for radio went from $118.8 million in 1950 to $208 million in 1960. Local retail radio advertising revenues jumped from $203.2 million to $401.6 million for the same period. By 1968, national advertising revenues for radio hit $342.2 million, while local radio advertising revenues reached $733.4 million. 1968 was radio's first billion-dollar year. Network radio figures are not included in this summary. The 1960s were peak years for the nation's AM Top 40 operators. According to former stores controller John Johnson, combined annual revenues for the six stores stations peaked at or near $20 million from the mid-60s through the early 70s. Annual revenues declined from 15 million downward into the late 70s. The new money was on FM. Clearly, the failing money position of Robert H. Stores on the FM question 
would become the company's undoing as a radio group, which, since its inception, had operated only AM stations. With the introduction of the transistor, AM-FM combination receivers had become price-friendly to consumers for both home and automobile. 1966 signaled the return of Storr's home office operations from Miami Beach to Omaha and the startup of renovating or relocating several of its stations, studios, offices, and upgrading much of its aging transmission and studio equipment. Business and industry were hungry for tax savings incentives through investment tax credits during a Vietnam War that wouldn't go away. Big ticket expenditures for studio and transmission equipment were made by the store's broadcasting company. Herbert A. Engdahl, then assistant to Robert H. Stores. All told, there was a, a substantial amount of money spent on equipment, ground systems, and studio, and studio equipment because they were all redone and rebuilt. And up until that time, the company pretty much did it on programming, and the physical plant and the technical plant were pretty well left alone. They were sorely in need of repair and refurbishing when it was done. If Todd Storrs was a pioneer in the creation of attention-getting radio programming and the marketing of his radio audiences for record radio advertising revenues, his father, Robert H. Storrs, was the quintessence of money management. And with that know-how came a major shift in the operating philosophy of the Storrs Broadcasting Company, from that of six quasi-independently managed stations to centralized management. Herb Engdahl. It was hard to put a set of books together. You really didn't know where you stood. The uh, uh, individual stations might send money back and forth to each other uh, with, without ever really knowing uh, at a central point what was happening. So this all changed. With the hiring of controller John Johnson and under Robert's watchful eyes, payroll, accounts payable and receivables became a centralized function of Stores Radio's Omaha office operations. John Johnson. He had good control because that was his training. I mean, he was a banker for years, and uh, he was on the, uh, the board of the uh, Omaha National Bank. He was uh, uh, very thorough, and uh, he wanted to know what was going on. He had a good insight, and he, he knew who was people, and he would check them out and talk to them, and uh, he uh, had a definite opinion one way or the other whether uh, uh, he was uh, in their corner or not. Stores general managers now required home office approval for any major expenditure. Herb Engdahl. He had a good feel of people, he had a good feel of business. And as Jack Sampson once told him, he says, I think you can see around corners. In an Omaha World Herald interview with Robert H. Storrs, then 80, feature writer Robert McMorris wrote in its October 6, 1979 edition, while the company is not a one-man show, Storrs is clearly in charge. Said McMorris of the elder Storrs, he described himself as a kind of perfectionist, who demands a high level of performance from subordinates as he does of himself. McMorris observed, he's not an easy man to work for, but he thinks he runs a happy ship. On hindsight, Todd's decision to move his home office operations from Omaha to Miami Beach would distance him from a failed 14-year marriage to the former Elizabeth Ann Trailer of Omaha, remove him somewhat from his father's scrutiny, provide him with a fresh backdrop and corporate identity, 
offer hoped-for relief from a persistent sinus condition and headaches of the migraine variety and bring him closer to the woman who'd become his second wife, Helen Lorraine Smith, a Wisconsin native and WQAM's receptionist. Said Ruthie Peterson, Todd's secretary, Todd loved New Orleans, but he loved Miami better. It was the synthesis of New York's new money and Los Angeles glitz. Omaha was beef and brawn, old money, and world headquarters for the Strategic Air Command. Industry rumor had it that Todd was negotiating his purchase of a major record company. In fact, he established Stores Records, a division of Stores Broadcasting Company with a state-of-the-craft recording studio as part of Stores Radio's new home office and WQAM complex. Disc jockeys across the United States welcomed Todd's first record. Timed for a Christmas release, it was titled Deck the Cage with Boughs of Holly and featured a parakeet and a canary named Tweety and Sweetie. His apparent answer to David Seville's singing chipmunks. The 45 RPM novelty record was Todd's first and his last. As the Soviets put their cosmonaut into Earth orbit on April 12, 1961, Todd had already produced and released his first demonstration disc recording of singing station identifications for sale to stations nationwide. Piloted for the stores stations by Miami composer-arranger Lon Norman, this jingle series centered on a space travel theme. Said Todd, One of the impressions that we try to create with listeners in little ways is that we are up to date, in other words, our stations are on the ball. And this is certainly a very, very timely theme, and yet it also is one that won't go out of date because space achievements will be with us for quite a long time, and so we can be sure that it's a topic that will be uppermost in the minds of many Americans for a long, long time to come. These jingles became a prophetic clue to the future of radio and television broadcasting in the United States and around the world. Satellite Radio, WQAM. Several days after the Soviets placed their cosmonaut into orbit, the failure of Operation Pluto left Americans and free world opinion in a state of stunned amazement. Operation Pluto, codename for the Kennedy administration's Bay of Pigs invasion of Castro-occupied Cuba, was to be essentially an air operation. For six weeks before, during, and after the failed invasion, WQAM broadcast nightly post-midnight Spanish-language live Voice of America programs lasting from 15 to 45 minutes, coordinated through USIA, the United States Information Agency, Edward R. Murrow, director. WQAM program director Charlie Murdoch reasoned that the Voice of America was fronting for the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. And why not? The CIA had conceived the original invasion strategy under the preceding Eisenhower administration. Said Murdoch, for 18 hours a day we were working for WQAM. After midnight, we were working for the federal government. If circumstances influence the course of history, Consider that President Kennedy and Todd Storrs were fellow alums of the prestigious Choate School at Wallingford, Connecticut. Kennedy graduating in the class of 1938 
and Todd graduating in the class of 1942. Emerging from the Kennedy administration's so-called intellectual blood bank was special advisor Ted Sorensen, who hailed from Lincoln, capital city of Todd's home state of Nebraska. To the foreign policy establishment, the Kennedy administration within it, and the intelligence community that surrounded it, Todd Storrs and WQAM had become its media assets. Of parallel interest to Washington watchers and media observers was the U.S. House of Representatives House Legislative Oversight Committee's inquiry into the relationship between the Storrs stations and 18 record companies. According to the Omaha World Herald for February 11, 1960, these record companies had picked up a $117,000 tab at the second of two disc jockey conventions sponsored by the Storrs stations in late May 1959 at Miami Beach's Americana Hotel. The first such convention took place at Kansas City's storied Mulebach Hotel on March 7th, 8th, and 9th, 1958. Largely the creation of Idea Man Bill Stewart, a two-page advertisement for the store's broadcasting company, appearing in the January 27, 1958 edition of Broadcasting Magazine, billed the Kansas City Convention as the first annual pop music disc jockey convention and programming seminar, free and open to all disc jockeys, program directors, record industry and broadcast industry management personnel. Modeled after the program of the 1958 Kansas City Disc Jockey Convention, the late May 1959 Miami Beach Convention attracted some 2,500 people, according to Bill Stewart. They were all heavy people. They were the people of that day, recalled Stewart, for Billboard Magazine's radio TV editor Claude Hall in its December 30, 1972 edition. Said Stewart, one local newspaper baited its convention coverage with this headline, Booze, Broads, and Bribes. The 1959 disc jockey convention at Miami Beach became a springboard into allegations of record play-for-pay to disc jockeys, known as payola. It was a hot topic, but payola was soon dwarfed by network television's rigged game shows, 21, and the $64,000 question. Meanwhile, the Federal Communications Commission was moving on legislation to make payola and rigged quiz shows a criminal offense. Storrs Vice President and WQAM General Manager Jack Sandler accepted the subpoena from House payola investigators. A similar subpoena, said the Associated Press, was served on the Americana Hotel for delivery of its records covering the convention at which 2,000 disc jockeys were wined and dined. By 1963, the 1934 Communications Act, as amended, would include Section 317, prohibiting any radio and television employee from accepting any gift in excess of $25 in value in any calendar year. A disclaimer crafted by Storrs Vice President and General Counsel Herb Dolgoff would be broadcast several times daily on the Storrs stations as follows. Certain records heard or given away on KXOK were provided in consideration of cooperation by various record artists, manufacturers, and distributors. Dolgoff had been instrumental in gifting WTIX's early 1450 frequency to the New Orleans School Board, while Todd negotiated the purchase of WWEZ's high-powered 690 
as Storrs Radio's WTIX dial position beginning in 1958. WTIX Audio News Real WQAM Saturday Top 40, May 3rd, 1958. Now let's turn to number 11 on that Top 40 survey, the great sounds of the Yorlons. Saw him last Saturday night on stage at the KXOK Super Summer All-Star Show. Not me, baby. Red Hot, on its way to the top. The Red Hot Tiger Top 50 disc from the new WDGY. Here's Elvis Bamwichi. Now, WHB's award-winning public opinion feature, EAM of Kansas City writes, here certainly is constructive criticism. Let's eliminate the election posters on telephone and light poles in greater Kansas City. It would create greater civic pride and dignity. WHB wants your transistor radio. We want to send it to By 1955, Todd Storrs, now 31, became president of the Mid-Continent Broadcasting Company, his father becoming its chairman of the board. Dale Mowdy, technical director, and Herb Dolgoff, Storrs' general counsel, along with station managers, were named as vice presidents. Historically, media-driven trends in the United States have generally imploded into the heartland from either coast. In the case of Storrs-style programming, the top 40 idea germinated in the heartland, Omaha, moved quickly down the Mississippi Valley, was perfected in Kansas City, and copied from coast to coast. The Storrs' formula for a successful radio station became the antidote to combat television's raid on radio's revenues. To this day, the tenets of Storrs programming form the basis of independent radio thought and action. The spaced repetition of popular music, listen to win promotions, the treatment of radio news, commercial production, and the resulting competition for listenership help to put radio in the United States back on its feet. Robert Herman Storrs died May 10, 1992, at the age of 93. His wife, Todd's mother, Mildred Todd Storrs, had predeceased him at the age of 87. The Storrs stations had been sold individually beginning in 1978, the last being KXOK in St. Louis, sold in 1985, bringing to a close an important chapter in American radio history. The Robert H. and Todd Storrs Scholarship Fund provides scholarships to attend the College of Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. In his May 1, 1964 letter to Broadcasting Magazine, Storrs Vice President and WQAM General Manager Jack Sandler said in part, there are thousands and thousands of people, employees of radio stations, advertising agencies, people in the FCC and your periodical, who directly or indirectly are benefiting from the genius that was Todd Storrs. Let's recognize that fact and do something about it. But most important of all, let us properly acknowledge the greatness and the effect of a man who did the most for radio. In Kansas City, this is Richard Fatherly.
grateful for the production assistance of Ray Otis, New York City, Chuck Chapman, Chapman Recording Studios, Kansas City, and Bud W. Connell, BCTV Productions, Laguna Niguel, California. For research and archival materials, the producer thanks the Douglas County, Nebraska Historical Society, the Omaha World Herald Newspaper, Chuck Haddock's Mar Sound Archives at the University of Missouri at Kansas City, Edward B. Ayers, Choate Rosemary Hall, Wallingford, Connecticut, Dan Diamond at WHB, Bobby Day and Bobby O at Oldies 95, Mike Morlock at KUDL, and Greg Funk at KFEZ, All Kansas City. For additional audio archival materials, the producer extends special thanks to Larry Hoffman, St. Louis, Frank Absher, WSIE, Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville, Don Warsham, Northridge, California. For their reminiscences and editorial support, the producer thanks George W. Armstrong, Herb Engdahl, John Johnson, Ruthie Peterson, and Carl Mann in Omaha, Harold Soderland and Sandy Jackson in Lincoln, Peggy McGrath, Roy Nanamaker, John E. Pearson, Don Mel, Charles Gray, Don Lochnane in Kansas City, and Johnny Canton, Minneapolis. And special thanks to Jack Sampson in Hutchinson, Kansas. The Honorable William L. Armstrong, United States Senate, retired in Denver, and Charlie Murdoch in Cincinnati. I'm Jeannie Blau. The producer is grateful for the production and editorial advice of Dr. David McFarlane, Kansas State University in Manhattan and Council Michael L. Feinstein, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And still more thanks to Arthur Storrs Jr. at the Historic Storrs Mansion in Omaha, Kansas City publicist Anita Harnett, radio archivist Don Fry in Lawrence, Kansas, radio yesteryears Dave Golden, Sandy Hook, Connecticut, and Ed Bruder, Man From Mars Productions in Manchester, New Hampshire. Thanks also to Helen Norwood Stacy. Pismo Beach, California, Jean Irwin, Kansas City, Rob Cecil at Audio Post Productions, Kansas City, Bill Taylor, KISS FM, Globe, Miami, Arizona, and Catherine Fatherly for her untiring assistance. Your comments are welcome to Post Office Box 172114, Kansas City, Kansas, 66117. This cassette has been released for audition purposes only. I'm J.P. Morgan. Thanks for listening.